This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we explore the red sun. And then, with songs of other tribes, we discuss Vancean magic in Dungeons and Dragons as a model for spellcasting. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. We're back on the Path of Suns this time, and we're going to be talking about Sun number 7, the Sun of Change, the Red Sun. So we just finished up talking about uh, the Pale Sun and how spirits and all sorts of things like to hang out there. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the place where demons are found which is under the red sun. Uh, so this is a sun of change. And I'm saying it is a sun of change because we have another one that's coming up. Uh, spoilers, it's the gold sun. We're going to be talking about it soon. But uh, the red sun, uh, the change that this sun embodies is all about destruction and annihilation. So it's, you know, scorching the earth and starting fresh. And... The other thing about this place is that it is alien and dangerous. The landscape is uh, apocalyptic. It's jagged, volcanic. Uh, and when I was reading through this, I was reminded of, you know, pictures from ancient textbooks that I, you know, grew up with uh, that would depict primordial Earth. Um, and we were just at the museum last weekend with the kids uh, and walking through the... Uh, the Earth exhibit, you know, one of those sections is, well, here's what Earth was like when it was, you know, first coming together. It was a, it was a wasteland. Red Sun. What do we want to focus on here? It, this is a sun that it's, it's a little difficult because of having it, that it has several key components, but they aren't necessarily connected uh, well. So it's hard to discuss. We've got this notion of change. We've got mm -hmm. the primordial broken landscape we've got demons uh and so each of these is really interesting uh and they are not disconnected but it is we kind of have to i guess hit them in turn because they don't follow a natural progression uh, or or a, a, a come out of some central theme yeah so why don't we touch on demons right off the bat uh because the others are the concepts that this sun represents which are a bit more abstract and I guess might be represented by, you know, what you find and interact with there. Uh, so, Hey, something we would be interacting with would be demons. Um, so the interesting thing about demons is that they're called red shadows and that calls back to the gray sun where the non visile people that you would encounter on the gray sun were referred to as shadows. Uh, and the thing that makes them shadows is that they lack any qualia. So they are, qualia is the uh, the soul of a Vizlay, right? 
Yes, uh, it has a term in philosophy that's related to this as well. Uh, but that is a fair interpretation of how it seems seems to work out in the game. Yeah, and I, I don't think it's limited to just Vizlay. I'm pretty sure Qualia is anybody who has a soul is going to have Qualia. Vizlay just happened to use their Qualia in order to cast magic. So these red shadows, they lack Qualia. Demons don't have a soul. Uh, and if I had read through my notes a little bit further, I would have remembered that uh, and wouldn't have had a question in here. But hey, <laughs> questions are good. Um, so this was the thing that I found uh, kind of hard to wrap my head around, but also very interesting. Since demons don't have any qualia, since they don't have souls, they can interact and understand a thing, but they're not going to experience it. So when I when I first read this, and that's in the Kickstarter update, I thought through it and I said to myself, "What does what does that even mean? How can you interact with something and understand it, but not have?" the experience of it. Do we have any good examples? I won't go so far as to say I have a good example, but it is consistent with a certain approach to philosophy and epistemology that uh, I've mentioned and maybe we'll go into in a future segment uh, parallel to, uh, was it the, the make, not the makers, the um, platonic uh, organization that we talked about, the uh, Mm -hmm. keepers of form. Well, in Contemporary philosophy, there are you know, obviously new concepts that they, they have done some work since Plato. Uh, the term qualia is most often associated with, with in, in philosophy with uh, the notion of an, uh, let's see, from Wikipedia, the language they use is a uh, individual instances of subjective conscious experience. And we can think of things that lack subjective conscious experience. Uh, and there are several ways they may lack that because each of those words can be lacking. A demon may have uh, sense perception, but not be able to assign meaning to what they perceive. And what they lack then is meaning creation and meaning sharing because they lack a subjective component to their experience. This is a distinction that's really important in social construction theories of uh, epistemology that argue that the only important stuff in the universe is uh, meaning and how we attribute meaning to all of those things things in the universe, and therefore all reality, uh, the important parts, uh, are based upon the meaning we attribute to them and are therefore socially constructed. This is exaggerated sometimes uh, to make fun of, uh, where people will say things like, well, uh, I I don't believe in social construction because I believe things like gravity is real because no matter how much you believe, you will not fly. It's not exactly what this means. (laughs) It's talking about the meaning that people attribute to to what they experience uh, it's it, so it's about how we understand gravity, not questioning whether there is gravity, but the meaning we attribute to it, the significance it plays in our world and our lives, is the important part. They would argue, and that is subjective. Demons may miss that step. They may understand things at a level where they can interact with them. They can operate in the world. They can use tools. They can communicate, but they lack. Uh, the ability to develop subjective personal meaning or to share and understand that meaning. A small version of this uh, might be uh, Drax from uh, the Guardians of the Galaxy. This is kind of, he's not a full-blown case of this, but remember he he doesn't understand metaphorical uh, language. 
Mm-hmm. This is a point of jokes uh, in the movie. Uh, and so that's part, you know, part of his character is he just doesn't get a lot of humor because a lot of humor is based upon metaphorical representations of reality and, and circumstance. An analogy to that might be demons uh, would not understand metaphorical language and they would not understand individual experiences uh, and they don't have their own version of their perceptions. They're just lacking that stage. So they are unreflective. They uh, do not communicate very well, uh, and they don't reach consensus because they can't develop uh, uh, intersubjective understanding as well. So a minor version could be the Drax characterization of not necessarily the demons are unintelligent, but they think so differently it's hard to communicate with them. And the way they think differently is that they just don't have individual subjective experiences. The notion of that any two people might be thinking different things is foreign to them. Can we frame this in a way that might make a bit more sense if you're not a demon? So let's say we have two people and what is something that they would experience and apply meaning to? I mean, are we talking about like movies or books or uh, perhaps um, a walk through the woods are these the sorts of things that we'd be looking at? Yeah, the, the easiest things to notice that would be missing would be moral or uh, normative associations with objects or actions. Because those are fairly well grounded in subjective experience. And we could debate over whether the subjective experience is the totality of those things, but... We could debate it, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> but um, I think an easy way to to exhibit this this decision process or you know how demons are different in the game itself might be that any particular action whether it is taking a walk in the woods or any particular object like um, a magical nuclear weapon uh, Mm -hmm. or anything along those lines they would see at only a, a material level they see it as an object like yes, that is a nuclear weapon. That yep. uh, they might understand how it, you know, the the magic of it works. They might understand if asked, uh, you know, this is the it will destroy everything within this radius. But it would not cross their mind that oh, um, some people may object to its existence because of things of, of how it could be used. Or there may be normative judgments on either the object itself, its creation, or its possession. Uh, very quickly. So we're taking a look at this. Uh, nuclear magic weapon. So there's a demon and myself, and we're talking about this magic weapon that can level an entire, you know, city in Indigo. And so the demon says, "Oh, this is this is what this thing can do. It can wipe out an entire city. That's that's its purpose. That's what it does." And I might look at that and say, "Well, that's absolutely terrifying," but that's not something that would cross, you know, a demon's mind is because that would be meaning that I'm applying to it. Yeah. I think that's a good example actually, because when you are, your reaction is an emotional response to it and that emotional response, it connects the material nature of that uh, weapon, what it can do, its characteristics, things like that uh, to the effects it may have. And then your attachment to the things impacted by that effect so you're saying it's terrifying because it could kill lots of of people it can destroy all of these things it can have these terrible effects you're attaching meaning to it 
That meaning in your in your case is emotional. It could be moral. Like instead of being terrified, you can be you can find it morally repugnant. Mm-hmm. Both of those, I think, are signal examples of a subjective experience, and that's what the demons would lack. Okay. Before we step out of the Red Sun, we should probably also talk about uh, one of the organizations that exists here. Uh, so we have we have an actual organization. Uh, so we're not just making this one up like we did with our um, maintainers of form. I uh, should have looked up what their name was, but what are you going to do? Um, so here we have the Solidarity of Varen, and this is a cabal of sorcerers who dwells. Uh, they dwell in towers uh, under the red sun, and these towers are arranged in order to create symbols that are sacred to dead gods and lost belief systems. So, hey, we've got, uh, you know, evil sorcerers living on the red sun. We have an NPC group. Super exciting. Uh, Monty Cooks has, has written about dead gods before. Several times. So. Oh, yeah? There may be some callbacks there. Yeah, there was a Planescape module that was very good. Uh, about I think tall dead gods, uh, and there may have been an early uh, three like one of his early Malhavic maybe not even early one of his Malhavic press books was something like Requiem for a God about as an event I think about the death of a god, but my recollection of the latter is much less well formed. I think I took mm-hmm. dead gods with me to of all places my honeymoon as my fun reading because <laughs> that's how I roll. Very romantic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my wife plays D&D, so it was not as crazy as it might sound. Not that we played D&D, it was just what I read on the plane. Yeah, I don't uh, think we need to get into role play on your honeymoon. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, but it was, uh, I, I enjoyed it a lot, so it's, it's a good module. Uh, it had a very important contribution to the metagame that was the history of Dungeons & Dragons, but I will leave mm-hmm. that sort of mystery, because it is kind of a mystery. Uh, but he has played in, in, with the use of dead gods uh, in... Uh, games before so it's it's kind of fun to see that pop up again uh in invisible sun in this case under the invisible sun uh yeah uh so this organization they they are seeking utter dissolution uh they're not just a death cult or they're not just trying to destroy everything they're looking to just dissolve reality it sounds like so here we have a group that one of the questions I, I thought of when I was reading this was like, how do you put together a group and run them? Uh, this group whose goal is to dissolve reality. How do you play them without just making them come across as evil? I mean, this is more than just nihilism. This is, you know, the end of reality. Well, which is kind of an extreme and broadly thinking version of nihilism. Mm-hmm. Um, one could say uh, that you know the uh, the desire to end all suffering is nihilistic, and maybe someone wants to end all suffering by ending all. Yeah, that always just comes across as misguided when it shows up in movies or literature. When I'm reading it, yeah. I did- I doubt I could make it look anything less than naive and and a little crazy. Well, maybe more than a little crazy. Yeah. Well, something to think about. Um... Though I, there's been since there's discussion uh, in the uh, play in the uh, uh, 
uh, notes that have come out before about kind of the before times and the creation of these suns and the, the system and how the invisible sun uh, and Vizsla uh, are central to this. They're, you know, they're, the way people tend to get around this, and you know, your mileage may vary as to how successful this attempt is, is to say that this destruction is motivated by an attempt to restart the cycle, that something has gone wrong with this cycle. And so you want to destroy everything to start over uh, with some reason to believe that starting over will lead to a better, purer universe. Hmm. That gets into the why the DC universe reboots every five years uh, or that sort of thing. Because they're just Um, hoping for one of those to stick and make a better universe. In their case, better universe means selling better than Marvel. But uh, even in other forms of fiction, you see some of this sort of crusader... um, uh, mentality that is nihilist, but it's it, it's it, it's kind of nihilist in the short term as they would see it mm-hmm. uh, to bring in a new age. Though that gets dangerously close to the next sun, which is about the second stage of destruction, which is the transformation that follows and renewal that follows from destruction. Whereas the red sun focuses on that just that first phase of destruction itself. Yeah. Uh, who cares about the the consequence or what you might do after everything's destroyed? Yeah, and I, so another motivation that might work that doesn't go so far as everything must be destroyed uh, is that destruction is the path of strength, and it is the ultimate test of strength to both destroy and to uh, resist destruction. So it becomes almost an evolutionary argument that uh, the path of destruction hones both those who are on it and those that are subject to those who are on it uh, to make them stronger and better. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, if this, if might makes right, then you might also say might makes true uh, in a world as magical as this. And so destruction is the exercise of strength to reduce that, which isn't really true to rubble so that only the true and powerful can remain. And I think a good thing to wrap this up on is a natural segue into who the guardian is. Uh, so the guardian of the red sun is Daomi, and she is revered by warriors uh, for her ability to wield these forces of annihilation. So right does make right, or might does make right in this instance, it seems. Uh, however, she can only wield these forces because she's insane. <laughs> uh, I suspect that insanity may be catchy uh, for those who try to channel her power and associate with her. It might be. Uh, And with that, I think we will be uh, talking about the Gold Sun next time. And that will close out the traditional path of suns, uh, an interesting landmark for our uh, coverage of the suns in the game. So I look forward to that discussion. With Songs of Other Tribes, we discuss elements of other RPGs and how in particular, they handle magic as inspiration for our Invisible Sun games. In this segment, we discuss the classic Vancean magic system in Dungeons & Dragons. We start this segment uh, with a discussion of Vancean magic because it's, in many ways, the longest-standing system for magic in role-playing games. It goes back to basic Dungeons & Dragons. Um, it is not the only version of magic that goes back to the 70s or 80s, but it has been uh, the pre- the predominant version in Dungeons & Dragons, uh, for it, which is itself the predominant RPG for decades, so it seemed like a useful place to start. 
good place to start, but I think I would argue that we don't have Vancy and Magic in 5th edition. Uh, we, we will have to work our way there, but I agree with you. Uh, and once we describe the system better, it'll be clearer why I, I agree with you and probably why right. you, you've reached this conclusion. Uh, but th the other reason why this is a good place to start is uh, one of our orders of magic is the Order of the Vance. Uh, and it is rather directly a reference to Vancean magic and to the fiction on which the Dungeons & Dragons traditional first edition magic system was based. And that is the fiction of uh, science fiction and fantasy author Jack Vance. In particular, his books associated are called The Dying Earth. He has a very particular type of magic in those books that served as the basis for early Dungeons and & Dragons. And in those books, a magician uh, would study a particular spell and prepare that spell ahead of time and, and say, I'm going on this journey, and this journey is likely to include uh, something I'm going to need to fly over and something I'm going to need to shoot with beams of power, and something I'm going to need to sneak past with invisibility. So I'm going to memorize those spells before I go on my journey. And then the rest of the story would play out just as the clever wizard had planned. And if there'd be one particular encounter that the wizard could sneak by with invisibility, and another barrier that could fly over with their spell, and another they just blast with their... You know, their, their force, uh, forces of magic. Uh, but what's key is when the spell was cast, it was forgotten. So it was a resource. Uh, and the early magic users in Dungeons & Dragons had to use this resource mechanic where before a session, you would go through and you decide where do you what spells do you memorize? Kind of like which weapons do you take with you? Uh, knowing that each one is something you can use exactly one time. So if you want to cast Fireball, fireball three times uh, and you can memorize three spells of that level, you have to check off ahead of time, I'm going to cast it exactly three times. And doing so means I don't have room to cast Haste or some other spell of a similar level. And you plan out all of your spells. Once you cast that Fireball, you mark one off of your list. Uh, and this is a system that, in retrospect, worked really well in, in its, the roots of role-playing games in war games because it was a resource mechanic that looked a lot like ammunition <laughs> from a wargaming perspective. And so it may sure. have fit well uh, with the predisposition of the game and its origins uh, in wargaming. But uh, it was unsatisfying to some, and it has, it's been controversial from, from the beginning, because some don't particularly like this fictional element uh, and how the system works out in the narrative of the game, that you have to commit to spells ahead of time, and that a spell is something you memorize and then you've mysteriously forgotten. Uh, some would say, like, if you've learned something, why would you suddenly forget it by doing it? Like, uh, uh, when I learned to use software, I don't forget it the first time I use the software package. Uh, once I've learned it, I've learned it. Uh, so it, it, it conflicts with some of our traditional understanding of learning and knowledge. Uh, I don't know. I learned how to brew beer and then I forgot how to drive. <laughs> um, but yes, that made, that's a whole different process. <laughs> um, now, in, with Vance's in Invisible Sun, <clears throat> we know from our previous discussion that um, Vance's will have a similar system that they will memorize certain spells and fit them on a chart. That, uh, and uh, spells will have different sizes, and it'll be sort of a Tetris game to figure out how they're allocating their space to memorize certain spells. 
Uh, there's been a reference to some ability to retain a spell after it's cast, mm -hmm. which suggests that by default, it's also likely you will lose that spell if you don't spend resources or do the right thing to retain a spell. So you have... In the order of Vance's, the essence of Vancean spellcasting, which is the necessity of preparation, and then the the expenditure of a spell when it is cast. Yeah, and you had touched on the dissatisfaction that some players may have had with the, you know, preparing your spells ahead of time, uh, and then losing them. There, there was also the dissatisfaction of preparing spells and then just never needing them. It was like if you weren't preparing Magic Missile, you were running a very good chance that you would be memorizing a spell that you would never use. And it would just sit there as a wasted slot, a wasted resource. And right. Go ahead. Yeah, and, and there, there were spells, there were often spells at any given level uh, that were utility and were really useful in a specific circumstance. Uh, mm -hmm. But often people would skip them because they just needed whatever the damage dealing spell for that level was. Yeah, the inconvenience of not having that utility spell just wasn't as important as having Fireball. So I'm trying to think of a utility spell at third level. Uh, I think Fly might have been a third level spell. Uh, at, at earlier levels, uh, you have spells like Spider Climb or Water Breathing um, or Levitation that can be really useful, but people often skip them because they don't, you know, it, as useful as they are, you're not sure you're going to need to climb a wall, but you're yep. pretty sure you're going to need to shoot a magic missile. Yeah, and that was one of the things that I always found kind of a letdown in that system. Like, I like the idea of having to prepare uh, before you went out and, you know, traveled into the unknown or tried to tackle a dungeon you'd never been in before. Uh, that was always fun to think about and come up with plans for. And yeah, in the fiction, that stuff totally works. But in gameplay, it it generally didn't. So yeah, you, you get uh, disabused of that you know preparation pretty quickly. Yeah, Vance had the advantage that he was writing his own protagonists. Yeah. So there was the you know curious correlation between how the protagonists prepared spells and the challenges they would eventually have, and there, there was some narrative element to suggest they could predict what was going on. In a in a uh, RPG, you might say, oh well, we're about to go track down the dreaded fish creatures in their lair. Water breathing is probably going to be useful. So you might be able to prepare utility spells based upon where you're going. Mm -hmm. uh, but then again, in that circumstance, what you're also telling the wizard is, by the way, uh, you're going somewhere where I'm just basically going to tax you some number of your spells because you're just going to have to use those utility spells. And we're telling you that from the beginning. So you're right. now 80% of a magic user for the next session. Because we're just going to go ahead and tax water breathing away from you and assume you're going to take it. Uh, and so that, it, it didn't really make anybody happy. Um, but spells varied also. Uh, part of this Vancean system was also how specific spells were. Like water breathing is pretty darn specific. Mm -hmm. It does exactly one thing uh, and does it well. Fireball is in many ways specific. It causes damage in a specific area of a specific type every time. Now you you roll damage, but it's it. There's not much debate over how fireball works. Uh, other spells, even with an Avancian system, had some flexibility, but they were rarer. 
uh, uh, spells, um, and some people really liked them. Uh, but they were in some ways atypical of most of these spells because these systems tended to focus on the highly specified spells. Example of that might be Mage Hand, which... Still um, useful. It is a utility spell. I believe it's first level in first edition or something along those lines. Probably they didn't have cantrips back then. Right. Um, I remember playing in fourth edition at a... a, whatever the predecessor to D&D Encounters was. I forgot the name of it. But the public play uh, games and 4th edition. And 4th edition is pretty strongly uh, Vantian in the sense that the spells are highly circumscribed. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this person had not played D&D since 1st edition. He was really excited. He was there with his kid. It was wonderful uh, that he was there. And he took Mage Hand. Uh, because he, what he loved about D&D was taking those sorts of spells with pretty broad uh, remits uh, and using them in unusual ways. So he took his mage hand and said, I'm going to mage hand this dagger over this villain and drop daggers on him. And sure. uh, uh, those of us from first edition D&D, like, that sounds like how first edition D&D happened. That's that's something that happens in first edition D&D. From a fourth edition perspective, we're like, wait a second, that's not on the card. <laughs> and ah, so there, cards. yeah. Um, and so it, it it conflicted with a narrow understanding of the spell. Uh, and while it's not inherent to Vancean magic, one of the you know associations with with Vancean magic is is spells that are highly circumscribed from the beginning. Otherwise, preparation doesn't really isn't binding. If if your if your if your preparation is do something with magic, like I'll do something with magic seven times, that doesn't limit you the the reason it's limiting as fancy and magic is you have to say oh i'm gonna do this specific thing with magic seven times whether it's a fireball or a mage hand or levitation or or whatever uh and different systems have gone different directions invisible sun and the cypher system uh seem to be going in a direction where spells are pretty broad or some of them are pretty broad at least not as as specific as sort of uh archetypal D&D spells like Magic Missile, where it's, it does exactly these number of missiles of this type for this damage, and that's what it does. Um, well, more Cypher System spells. The, the powers and spells in the Cypher System, uh, I mean, those do seem pretty broad, mm-hmm. uh, but I think, I think we might be running into something that has a bit more structure with Invisible Sun, because magic is going to be such an important part of this game, and since Vance's have to select certain spells before they, you know, uh, they have to select certain spells that they stick into their brains that will achieve certain effects, I think we might have a little bit more structure here for what sort of effects you're going to be getting uh, from your spells. They might, I mean, they'll, they'll probably still be open to more interpretation than, you know, a, uh, an encounter ability from 4th edition would have. Uh, but I'm thinking that we're going to see something that has a lot more structure than what you would have gotten from like uh, the only example I can think of right now off the top of my head is the scan ability or, or like push uh, push from the cipher system sure it pushes a thing but you can do all sorts of stuff with just pushing something very much like mage hand you can right. lift daggers and drop them onto villains heads um so I would I would guess that we'd see something that's a bit more like Cipher System, but we'd probably have more structured, uh, smaller effects for the spells. 
You're probably right, especially among the order of answers. So the order of ants, the spells for that the order of ants rely on, maybe a little more Vancian, a little more structured than cipher system spellcasters. Uh, but then we also have the weavers that go the opposite direction, where they are right. less structured uh, and they, you know, will weave together different uh, elements in order to create their spell effects. Uh, so within Invisible Sun, we have again evidence. You know, this is just an example of how the the game allows players to choose the type of magic they want. Those who are interested in the planning aspects of Vancey Magic System, uh, who want to face the challenge of uh, choosing some things ahead of time, choosing a set of tools, and then figuring out how do they use these tools to accomplish their goals in a given instance or a given encounter. That's what the Vances are all about. And that's consistent with the history of Vancey and Magic and Dungeons and & Dragons and, and other systems based upon a same uh, fictional uh, heritage. But the other orders will ha may have very different systems of magic. So, right. uh, and, and we, we may even uh, simplistically say that the order of Vances have early D&D sorts of magic uh, and other systems like the Weavers seem to have a, a, a mage, the uh, awakening sort of magic. Which and, I guess we should probably talk about that at some point. Well, that might be a natural element for this this new segment of songs yeah. of other tribes. Uh, but it, 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 this might live up to some of the hype from a previous revision of the world's favorite, uh, world's most popular fantasy role playing game that suggested that different players could play different editions at the table at the same time. Accounts vary to the extent that the uh, the, the game has achieved that. Uh, but what Invisible Sun does seem to try and do is have magic users, um, you know, that are Vizlai, that use magic in different ways, and in some sense allow allow different players to play different magic systems, almost mm -hmm. like playing different RPGs at the same table in the same story. Um, now, Fifth Edition D and D, it has wizards, and they cast spells, and they prepare them. But we both agreed that it's not quite Vancian anymore. Why is that? Well, it has the memorized component in that yes. you set which spells you're going to memorize for the day. What it lacks is the forget component. And so there's uh, maybe half of the forget component. No, it's I think still, that's pretty accurate. Yeah, there's still a resource consumption component. You're only allowed to cast so many first level spells in it before you rest. But... Mm -hmm. If you cast a particular spell, you don't forget it. You retain memory of that spell, and you can cast it again as long as you have another spell slot for that particular level. Uh, right. This encourages you to prepare some utility spells because, yeah, you can prepare one magic missile once and say, I've got it. If I need it, I've got it. But if uh, I can also prepare Spider Climb or Levitate or whatever uh, because uh, if I don't need it, I can still cast magic missile four times if that's what I need to do. Uh, but I don't have to say I'm going to cast Magic Missile once and levit or Levitate once or Mage Hand once or whatever level-appropriate examples are. Uh, instead, you just say, here's four things I might want to do today. However many times I want to do those, I get to choose which ones I do in what proportion. So the forgetting component is very different in 5th edition. Yeah, so they've modified the forgetting component for 5th edition, and Invisible Sun is going to be messing with that component as well. Uh, from what I recall, uh, if you're a Vance, you can you can remember a spell after you've cast it, or you can just like burn it and not worry about it, uh, which 
allows you to like store some power. Um, yeah, I don't recall what was stated in the uh, actual uh, uh, Kickstarter updates, but it was something like either there's a test to see whether you, you can retain the spell or there's a resource you can spend to retain the spell. Right. Something it's, along those lines. Yeah, it's something like that. Um, so I'm curious to see if... It seems like the problem here is, well, hmm. there are two problems here. The The first edition of D&D was very rigid in what you could do as a wizard. You would memorize a certain number of spells and that's all you could cast. And that was something that players butted up against. And with you know later editions of D&D, spe- uh, specifically with fifth edition, they, they tried to loosen that up so that a wizard would be a bit more flexible but still feel... Uh, like a traditional Vancean spellcaster. And I think they did hit that with 5th edition. Mm-hmm. No, um, I'm happy with where they got it. So I, I don't mean to, you know, this isn't a complaint about wizards in 5th edition. I think they, they, yeah. they found a really good spot. Yeah, So and it sounds like uh, they're trying to do a similar sort of design for Invisible Sun. We want you to have the restrictions that come with Vancean spellcasting, but this is a modern game and it's going to be designed with this you know, knowledge that it's more fun to have some options within this space rather than being totally tied down to these decisions. Uh, and you can have you can have that balance just by attaching either a test or a cost. Yeah. So it'll be interesting to see if that if that plays out and is, you know, another good solution to this this issue. So we can see in comparison to the pure Vancean system, if such a thing exists, from early Dungeons & Dragons, that neither the current editions of Dungeons & Dragons nor Visible Sun seems to be purely Vancean. Mm-hmm. Um, but the roots are there, uh, particularly in the order of Vance's in Invisible Sun. So it's fun to see the connections between the history of magic and RPGs uh, and the different orders and the different systems of magic in Invisible Sun. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. And you can find me at DR Scott Robinson on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore red on Twitter. So leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. We hear it helps people find the show. Uh, or tell a friend about the show, and that would be another great way to help us out. Thanks.